0: The only daily Premier League podcast This is Football Social Daily
1: This is Football Social Daily The daily Premier League podcast Hitting Monday like a Kai Havertz elbow to the face (laughs) I'm Jim Salverson and on today's podcast We're going to be looking at the latest at Chelsea Football Club The crisis club at the moment They continue to face an uncertain future But I want to know Is it fair and is it right that managers have to take responsibility for justifying the actions of their owners? Because Thomas Tuchel and Eddie Howe both fielded some awkward questions in their post-match press conferences this weekend. We'll get on to that shortly. Plus, we're going to be putting some things into the sea with our regular Monday moans, things that we want to cast into the waves and get rid of for good. And there is one Premier League game as well to finish off the weekend's action with Manchester City looking to extend what is a really good run away from home at the moment with a trip to the rejuvenated this season Crystal Palace. Doing all that we've got Niall McCord. How are you doing Niall? Very well boys, very good. Good and Marley Anderson, are you alright Marley?
0: Yes, not too bad yet, just about recovered from the... Disappointment of yesterday and the disappointment of the the VAR officials, which I'm sure we're going to come on to.
1: Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that I had already (laughs) predicted that was going to be your get in the sea later, so I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, (laughs) right, let's start with Crystal Palace versus Manchester City. Now, you'd fancy a Manchester City win, but if you rewind to earlier in the season, Crystal Palace actually managed to get a win versus Manchester City when it was the game at the Etihad. Can they do the double Nile? Can they do it again?
2: They can, but they won't, I don't think, Um, to put it simply. Certainly in the Premier League, we've come to expect that results like this can happen. But if you think about how good Manchester City are and have been, it was considered a shock when a team as good as Spurs went and beat them 3-2 a few Mm. weeks ago. So for Crystal Palace to do what they did earlier on in the season does seem very, very unlikely. But that being said, we know what pressure can do to teams. And this is a title race where the pressure is beginning to mount. Liverpool and Manchester City, it's going to be a close run thing. City are in control They're very good at staying in control and they're very good at holding on to the lead in the title race. We've seen that on a number of occasions in the last few seasons. So they have the advantage at the moment. They have better players than Crystal Palace. They have a better manager than Crystal Palace. And that's not to disrespect the Eagles. That's just a fact of the matter. And so therefore, yeah, I do think Manchester City will be too strong for Palace tonight. I think what we should say is that Vieira has certainly changed the perception around Palace. Mm. A lot of people were saying that they were going to get relegated at the start of the season because they had a number of players out of contract. The steady hand of Roy Hodgson was on its way out, and who was going to replace him? A manager in Vieira who we even questioned on this podcast did he have the experience necessary to do a good job in the Premier League? I think he has done. I think the Palace fans are very happy with the style of play. They've been entertained, they've been excited. I think they do have a, an Achilles heel, which is they concede a lot of late goals, Crystal Palace. The amount of games that they've been in where they've conceded beyond the 85th minute to either lose points or drop points is surely a concern. But I don't think we'll find ourselves in this situation against uh, Manchester City. I just think City will be too strong. Can be difficult to change the perception of a club and change the style when you
1: go from something... We saw it at Palace before when they had De Bruyne yeah. in charge. Mm. Like It went disastrously wrong. So he does deserve a bit of credit, Vieira. As for Manchester City, Marley... If City were to lose this game, and they've got a three-point lead in the title race at the moment, does that really become advantage Liverpool? Does the power start to shift? Because even though they've got that slight lead in points, Liverpool have undoubtedly got the momentum at the moment.
0: Yeah, I think if if that was to happen, yeah, definitely. Because um, you know, being level is is totally like yeah, like you said, just shift the momentum. I think um, if if that was to happen. Liverpool would probably fancy themselves. I think City'd still say, "Okay, we'll we'll take our chances and try and beat you when we play in April." But um, yeah, as for the short term, you know, you don't want to give Liverpool more hope, especially when they've they've came through a couple of tough games recently and won them, um, like the West Ham game. They weren't great against mm. West Ham. Uh, they had another little wobble in the Champions League where they got beat, but sort of edged through one on on, um, on aggregate, like thanks to the first leg performance. And even Brighton at the weekend, they weren't fantastic against Brighton. I don't think so, um, but they're still winning, and that that gives them confidence of they can they can still win when they're playing in sort of third gear rather than fourth or fifth gear. And uh, if Man City don't win tonight, then it's um, it's another sort of boost for them that you don't you, you simply don't want to give them because you don't want your, your rivals on. I think they're on like a unbeaten since. Um, i think it's october or something or november in the in the league or something like that um so yeah you don't want to you don't want to give them any more sort of room for for improvement if city
1: do win tonight nile mm-hmm. and i think we'd all back city to win this one it equals their premier league record of 14 games unbeaten away from home has that been a real key to their success their ability to get points on the road because They don't often get credit for being this stoic, combative side, Manchester City. But you have to show that side of your game if you're going to win games away from home like they have done.
2: Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Definitely, you know, their away record has gone under the radar. And you'd expect that from a top team, though. I will say that about Manchester City. And you talk about showing that combative side, the stoic side defensively. I think it's very rare that you see Manchester City sucked into a game with those attributes to it. Mm. I mean often City what they do is they keep the ball they they suffocate you with their possession. You know that's what Manchester City do. They they suffocate you, they pull defenses around, make gaps, make spaces and the amount of times we've seen the wide players get to the touchline, cut balls back and then you've got runners in the box to finish off the chances. That is almost, you know, the Pep Guardiola blueprint in terms of scoring goals. But, but what they do have is they do have players like Rodri like Fernandinho who when the going does get a little bit more tough they can get stuck in there they can break up play really kind of stop counterattacks and things like that and that's what they they're good at so they have players with with different credentials who are able to do different jobs but what i will say is that manchester city they starve you of possession they hold the ball and they say right if you're going to beat us you've got to get the ball off us one thing crystal palace did do in that game where they beat manchester city is they kept the ball very very well they moved the ball quickly and we know about Pressing football, which Manchester City play Mm. um, when they're out of possession, uh, if you pass the ball quick enough, you can play around the press. Now, it's not the easiest thing to do because obviously you don't know where the triggers are and and when the players are going to come in and, and try and pressure the ball. But if you can pass the ball quick enough and you can make the right runs, you can play behind and through Manchester City. It's very hard to do. Crystal Palace showed that in the other game that they played and they got a result out of it. Whether they'll be able to do that at Selhurst Park tonight, I don't know. But certainly City's away record is excellent. You'd expect them to to do the job tonight regardless. I think that if they score a goal in the first 20 minutes, I think it'd be too tough for Crystal Palace to come back. If Palace can keep it tight and somehow keep City out until halftime or maybe an hour, they might start thinking that they could squeeze a result out of it. But if City score the first goal and it's in the first half, I can't see Palace winning.
1: Potentially the challenge for City could be keeping the ball out of the net because they've got a couple of issues in defence at the moment. Cancelo, who has been superb this season, he's out with illness. Ruben Diaz definitely out as well. And one of the things that Niall highlighted earlier, Marley, was how Crystal Palace have become this attacking force. They've got a few decent options up front now. Who was your pick of their attacking players? I'm assuming you're not going to go for Christian Benteke. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, I think with... Palace have, have done done some decent business, obviously. You know, in the last year or so, you know, bringing in Eze was quality last season. Before he got that bad injury, mm. he's still sort of just coming back, and he can't really get into the team at the minute because of the form of of obviously Zahar picked himself as as he will do, as he has done m- most of his career at Crystal Palace. So there's him on one wing, and then there's the the probably the standout player of of Palace's season in. in and attacking sense is Michael Elise. Yeah. He's been brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. you know, playing on the right, sort of left footed likes to cut inside. He's almost similar to Zahar but um like a mirror image of him. Like he, he plays on the left the right and comes in on his left whereas Zaha's the opposite way around. But he's um his dribbling and his his output is is getting much better. Um that's always the challenge for, for young players mm-hmm. who are uh flashy and dribbly, you know, it's it's the consistency which is uh what sort of sets them apart. So I think he's, he's trying to add that to his game, but he's certainly got the flashes of talent to, to say he's going to be a really big player. He's had some couple of, of really, really good performances this season that have highlighted how good he can be, but um, with with that, I, I think Palace probably do need a little bit more in centre-forward. I think Eduard's not been uh, amazing so far this he season. He started really well, didn't he? And then he just yeah, he went did. off yeah. the boil. he did. And then in January, it, it kind of it baffled me a little bit what Palace did because they signed Mateta on. He made they made his loan permanent for I think I think it was eight million, but he would barely played. He he barely got in the squad last season and in the first half of this season, and then somehow he's came back into the mix and now he's their starting centre forward for most weeks ahead of Edward. So he's doing quite well. To be fair to him, he's 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 one of the players Mateta who's got mm. got everything really. He's, he's tall. He's he's not slow. He's he's pretty quick for his size and. You know, he's decent around the box. He just needs to be a bit more clinical in his in his finishing. But as long as someone's chipping in there, it doesn't really matter whether it's Eduard, Mateta or, or even Ben Teke for 20 minutes off the bench giving you another option. As long as one of them fills in and scores the goal that, that mm. gets you into the game, that's what Palace need. And I think they've got a decent base to do that. Um, and the likes of Conor Gallagher in midfield behind them is, is, uh, is something that Palace can be happy with because they've now got an identity to the team. Whereas last year... And the year before. and The year before and the Hodgson, they were boring. They were you couldn't pay me to watch them. They were so dull and so methodical that it that they needed some injection of, of something. And they've got that in, in numerous places now this year.
1: Speaking of attacking options, we can't talk about Manchester City without talking about the rumors that popped up over the weekend and got a lot of Manchester City fans ridiculously excited. And that involves the future of Erling Haaland, mm-hmm. who there were rumours, and they've, 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 these rumours are kind of backed off a little bit over the last 24 hours, but the suggestion was there was a deal in place that Erling Haaland was coming to Manchester City this summer. Firstly, now, nah, do you believe them? Do you think it's happening? And if it does happen, is he kind of the missing piece of that puzzle at Manchester City? Is it very difficult to see if Erling Haaland joins Man City? Is it difficult to see anything other than a blue title next season?
2: First of all, I do believe them because... Jack Gorn, who broke the story for the Daily Mail, was my mate, so I'm going to say that I do believe him. Who um, <laughs> you yeah. can hear on Football Social Daily. Yes, the weekend. absolutely you can. And I'm sure that next time he's on the podcast, we'll be picking his brains about that, you know, Erling Haaland allegedly having a, a deal in place to join Manchester City. We all have talked about Haaland's release clause in the summer, which is, I think, 63 million, something around that. And with the goal-scoring record that he's shown and the age that he is and the attributes that he has, he's fast, He's strong. Mm. He's a dead-eye finisher. He's, he's got freak. He's got an. Atti- he's got an attitude. An absolute robot of a player. He yeah. reminds
1: me of Jonah Lumu. when Jonah Lumu first burst on the scene for, for yeah New Zealand. He was like, he was the model of what professional rugby players were going to become. Mm. He was like, he was a beast, and he was just unplayable. Erling Haaland reminds
0: me a little yeah, bit of with
2: Haaland. For me, it's the way he sprints. He's just a very oh, unusual-looking yeah. guy. But it's like a gazelle, isn't he? Yeah. Like, his mm. stride
0: pattern is like. He must be like over two metres, it's ridiculous.
2: But like I say, when I say he's got an attitude, I mean that he's arrogant, but in a way he knows he can back it up. He's brash, he's confident, like almost like a WWE wrestler, you know, with the trash talk on the mic. You know, it's it's very similar to that. Mm. So um, we all know how good he is, and there's no doubt he's one of the most sought-after players in the world. But with that £63 million release clause, there will be clubs circling. I think with the circumstances we see at the moment, and this is just my opinion, not what Jack's put in his article for the Mail... But my opinion is Chelsea are in disarray. Manchester United probably aren't going to finish in the Champions League as things stand. So will he go there? Barcelona, again, similarly financial problems uh, supposedly there. Bayern Munich, obviously Lewandowski, whether he stays and goes Mm. is another question. The, The natural succession plan you think would be for him to go there. Real Madrid then, that leaves them. But then Manchester City, we know his links with the club in terms of his father used to play there. He's been pictured wearing Manchester City training kits just kind of when he's been having a kickabout. He's been to Man City games, watching the Champions League with his dad when he was slightly younger. He was at, younger, he playing he was at for Phil Salzburg. Foden's debut. He was at was Phil it? Foden's debut. <laughs> yeah. In the so Carabao Cup, yeah. He, yeah, I mean, this is, um, this is why I think that this is not a, a surprise. But what I think we should say is that a deal in principle doesn't mean that Erling Haaland is nailed on to join Manchester City. Mm. A deal in principle, nothing's been signed effectively. So nothing's set in stone. So... I think we need to be careful with suggesting that Haaland is nailed on to go to Manchester City. But that being said, I think I heard similar stories about Jack Grealish last season and I was utterly convinced he would join Manchester City last summer and Mm. he did. So I am going to err on the side of yes, I believe this. Yes, I think he will sign for Manchester City due to the circumstances around uh, football at the There's moment. There's a lot that makes sense about it. That's yeah, thing, like I say, it? I mean, all yeah. of the other things. Chelsea. Too much logic, Chelsea is yeah. struggling. Manchester United don't seem in the right position at the moment. Leeds. He, he, you know, everyone says he could join. No, he's not going to join Leeds. Come on, guys. Let's be <laughs> yeah, serious yeah, yeah, yeah. here. Everyone maybe um, maybe uh, safe. join me? Leeds and then get kept out of the team by Patrick Bamford. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. Uh, I mean. Uh, Oh, it's yeah. hard It's hard to look beyond City, mm, City isn't it but very. that being said especially Liv-
0: if Liverpool don't sort out Salah's situation yeah
2: I mean Liverpool we don't know what's going on with Salah but they've got Diaz who's come in and looked absolutely exceptional he's slotted in you know, it's fit like a glove hasn't it Diogo Jota's been great for them Mane's still a very good player it's hard yeah. to say for sure that City are going to win the Premier League because you just you just don't know, do you? I mean, this is the thing about English football is you just never know. Mm. But, I mean, it's hard to look beyond them. I'd say it's more than likely for me that he's going to join and it's more than likely, if that is the case, that they're going to have a top chance of winning the Premier League again.
1: As you say, football is very pre- unpredictable, though. So nothing is taken for granted and who would have predicted that Chelsea would find themselves in the situation they're currently in? We're going to have the latest on the ownership and the manager and what is happening at Stanford Bridge next on Football Social Daily.
0: Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.
1: Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Uncertain times for Chelsea at the moment. Their future is still very, very unclear. And that was certainly made apparent in comments from Thomas Tuchel after the Newcastle game at the weekend. He suggested there was a bit of uncertainty around his future Marley. And I don't really know what else he could have said in this scenario, but he was asked whether he'd be remaining at the football club. And he said, at least until the end of the season. Which I think he meant as a reassurance, like... I'm not going to be walking out anytime soon. But (laughs) it kind of comes across the opposite way, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, that's... I mean, you can say one thing and and that's fine, but if the media... Well, if people take it in the other way, then that is, you know, hasn't had the desired outcome. And that's probably what it is because everyone goes, oh, what about next season? Mm -hmm. And he's probably just thinking... He's thinking of it logically, like he probably knows that Chelsea have got just about enough money to get to the end of the season, even though there's reports coming out that they've got enough money for another two weeks. But in two weeks' time, they'll they'll probably have found money from somewhere yeah. in some loophole somewhere. You know what I mean? So, um, so the end of the season is like a realistic like checkpoint of like we'll we'll get there, then we'll assess assess everything, and we'll see whether this war's still going ahead, whether these sanctions still apply. Um, whether new investors have come in or administrators have came in and sold the club to the right person or what have you. Um, and then, yeah, so, but yeah, I mean, for Tuchel's future, obviously he can't, he can't sit there and say, I'm going to be there for another, for the rest of my contract, which is another two years or whatever, because he doesn't know the situation mm-hmm. as much as we don't. Like, this is probably the one time where our guess of what's going to happen with Chelsea is good as is as good as Tuchel's, because literally yeah. nobody knows. It, it just proves how up in the air everything is, that yeah, doesn't it, like, as a football Yeah, conference.
2: Let's just say they get sacked. I mean, who sacks him? <laughs> Can Abramovich still sack him? No. This is, this is, is, is actually the, the, the board. Time. Is it the trustees? It's like, no one knows no. what. This is the safest
0: time to be a Chelsea manager, because <laughs> <Yeah, yeah, yeah. laughs> there's no one there to sack <laughs> him. It's Boris Johnson. He's the boss.
1: <laughs> I mean, in terms of Thomas Tuchel as a manager, undoubtedly he is hugely respected, and I've seen the Manchester United fans circling like vultures, particularly on social media, going, oh, this is the man we want as our manager next season. Bring him in instead of Pochettino. Do you think he's the right option to go into Old Trafford as manager Niall? I mean, Pochettino has been the smart money for ages, but I think Thomas Tuchel feels like a safer choice. I think it feels like he'd bring more to that
2: role. I think of the three candidates, if you include Tuchel as one of them now, uh, that have been on the table for a while. One is Pochettino, one is the Ajax manager, Eric Tenag, and now we're obviously talking about Thomas Tuchel. I think that Ralph Rangnick was asked about this in his pre-match press conference ahead of the Tottenham game at the weekend, and he said that you know he, he feels for Thomas Tuchel and what's going on at Chelsea, but he likes him. Mm. And obviously, the two of them, both German, Thomas Tuchel managed Mites in his early career, and Ralph Rangnick was kind of the trendsetter in terms of the way that current German coaches play the game. So you know that Tuchel Gegen... played under Rangnick as well. Did he really? I didn't yeah, know that. So you know the Geggenpress style that Ralph Rangnick kind of um, yeah he he effectively birthed it. Yeah, that's what people say, don't they? The Geggenpress style of football came from Rangnick, and so. You know, We've seen Jurgen Klopp make, it, make huge success of his career out of playing that style. Thomas Tuchel it is slightly different in terms of the way that he plays that, that style, but it's effective nonetheless and it's won in the Champions League and it's won in plenty of plaudits. I think in terms of Manchester United picking off Thomas Tuchel, it would take an extraordinary turn of events for that to happen. I still think that, as uncertain as things are at Chelsea, it's more likely that he stays at Stamford mm-hmm. Bridge than he goes to Manchester United. That's not to say that he wouldn't be an excellent choice as manager. I I'd think United doing, fans would be delighted I'd be with that.
0: Doing everything, if I was a Man United board, to yeah. try and get Tuchel, just sow that seed in his in his mind now. Get yeah. Rangnick. Rangnick's got his number, of course he has. Yeah. Get course. him. You know, if ever. Yeah. Hi, Thomas, Ralph here. If everything goes tits up, come and work under me. Two Germans who've known each other for a long, long time. I can't think of a better thing. Mm. Can't think of a better partnership, because as as we said sort of last week, if Pochettino comes in and doesn't get on with Rangnick and they have different differences of opinion, who wins that battle? Like yep. it just
2: creates more uncertainty. And also, the Manchester United players will have seen Thomas Tuchel's success first-hand yeah, in the last couple yeah, of years. They would have played against Chelsea yeah. and gone... They have played They're underneath good. him, someone like Jadon Sancho, who would have played underneath Thomas <laughs> Tuchel at Borussia Dortmund. So, you know, mm-hmm. there are obvious lines and parallels and links to draw there. Whether it will happen or not, like I said, I think it would take a lot for Tuchel to leave Chelsea. We heard from Kieran Maguire last week um, from the Brilliant Price of Football podcast, and he said that this licence that Chelsea have got to operate under uh, expires on the 31st of May, by which point the season will have finished, uh, the Champions League will have been decided, mm-hmm. and... We should know who owns Chelsea, whether that's Abramovich still or not. And that's another thing
0: about this thing of we'll see at the end of the season with Tuchel. It's another thing that strengthens that because at the end of the season the sanctions are going to be lifted. Yeah, and they can go.
2: And he could stay left, Mm -hmm. right, straight ahead. They can go in different directions wherever they want. And he could stay. And let's not forget, right at the moment, Chelsea is still in the Champions League. They're still in the FA Cup, despite what's going on around them financially, off the field with the sanctions against still bit, their own. They could still win some <laughs> silverware. They, they could still win two trophies this season. I mean, yep. they've already reached one final. Yeah, you know, crazy it's, situation it's remarkable, and isn't it? Really? As well. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so, won. I mean, yes, Thomas Tuchel would be an excellent option for Manchester United. And do you know what? I think he'd be the best of the three out of Pochettino, yeah. Ten oh, and Tuchel. Far. I think yeah. Tuchel is leading the way in terms of being the top of the three. Whether it happens or not, I don't know. I think that it's probably one of the hardest of the three to pull off. But as Marley yeah. says, there's no reason they shouldn't explore it. I'm sure Ralph yeah. Rangnick has an idea in his mind of what he wants to do.
0: Man United used to be, I mean, every every pundit who used to play for Man United specifically, or particularly, I should say, always likes to harp on about, oh, you know, best in class. Man United go out and buy the best in class. They, they always used to do that and they're not doing it now. Gary Neville, Roy Keane, people like that say that. Like, it's a typical Man United move. To go out and and be a bit of be a be, a, be sh- houses about this. Go out go and get their your, your rivals manager. What's what's a bigger power play than that? Go and signing and sign in Van Persie. And when they went and signed him from Arsenal, just rocked up and went. We're taking him. Stop us. Try and stop us. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's proper. It's strong. It's like a power move. Um. And if if they can capitalize on this uh this sort of up in the air business that Chelsea are in now and take the manager, the Champions League winning manager. You know, I, that is—I can't think of a more power, bigger power move in Premier League history.
1: I would say I think Thomas Tuchel has hand, handled himself very well over the last week or so. Yeah. He's spoken well, he's spoken passionately, and he's fielded some very difficult questions that potentially he probably shouldn't have been put in a position to field. And I want to get your view on this, Marley, because it wasn't just Thomas Tuchel oh, who I'm was so answering awkward this. questions <laughs> at the weekend; it was Eddie Howe as well. He yeah. was. I had a question put to me at a press conference about the actions of the Saudi Arabian state who are obviously connected to the group that, or are the group that own Newcastle United at the moment. Is it right that Eddie Howe should be asked those questions
0: in a press conference? Um, I don't know, to be honest, because he is, he is the public face of the club who you can get yeah. access to. However... I don't know really, because it it does seem unfair. Because mm. I know he's he's working for for them, but also, you know, my my long term take on this situation is that the Premier League couldn't prove that they were the same people. We all th- we all think they are, and we all sort of think we know that mm. they are the same people that are that are you know doing things in Yemen that are against all kinds of laws and whatever. But it's not Eddie Howe's. Responsibility to, to ask to answer those questions. Maybe the club should, hmm. maybe the, maybe Steve and Amanda Stavely it, and, and the PIF themselves could should maybe come out and say something. But are they gonna? Not really, because they've they've jumped through all their hurdles to yeah. get this thing over the line, That's, and it's well in in progress now.
2: It's exactly it, Marley, and I'm totally with you. It's yes, Eddie Howe should be asked those questions. Um, but at the end of the day, he is only a football manager. Now, he is a man, and he might have his own opinions on it and his own moral views on it, but he is employed by Newcastle United to manage the football team. Mm. And part of managing the football team is to field those questions, and you are going to get questions from journalists about the regime that own Newcastle United Football Club. However, like what Marley says, you know he is the only public face of the club, and he's the only one that faces the media. So maybe yeah. Amanda Staveley should sit down maybe someone from the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia should sit down and do a press conference and field questions. He would they, have
1: known when he took that job. Course, he knew the scenario oh, course, and yeah, he knew Jim, he was going to ask stuff. Of course,
2: stuff. right? He would have known that. Yeah. But, I mean, all he's going to do is do what politicians do every single week at Prime Minister's questions and just deflect. And I don't blame Eddie Howe for doing it because if I was in that situation, I'd what probably even, do the same thing. But I think that, you know, he is naturally going to be asked those questions. And so, you know, we say that, Amanda Stabley and the Saudis should come out and do a, a field some questions, but there's a reason Roman Abramovich didn't do an interview for the 20 years that he owned Chelsea. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason that these people don't want to talk to the press because mm. they know that they've got problems that will be <laughs> yeah. uncovered by the media. And so it's lot, easy for them the closet, to put yeah. all of the pressure yeah. on Eddie Howe.
0: Yeah, and I think the big thing, the big difference is like, because this, this takeover went through now, and Chelsea's was 20 years ago. I think 20 years ago the you know the world was a very different place in terms of like um uh keeping things secret like the social media now everybody knows that you know 81 people were were killed in Saudi Arabia over the weekend. Um nobody would have known mm. that in 2000 if this happened in 2003 Twitter wasn't around, I don't think. I think it, there's
1: been a big shift in terms of the climate now though with the yeah, every, everyone. With its Ukraine thing? It's yeah. like everyone's eyes have suddenly been opened, and there's lo- loads more questions around yeah. ownership now than there was three weeks ago. Yeah,
0: and now I mean, everyone like with with the Ukraine thing that's that's been kicking off for the last you know two weeks or so. For the first week, it was like um, Ukraine and Russia are at, are at war. Like Russia's invading Ukraine, and blah blah blah. And then now, you can't go on Twitter without saying, yeah, but what about Yemen? Like, all you see, and it's like, people have just seen this thing about Yemen, and then they're all going, well, shouldn't we be outraged by every war? It's like, well, you've seen it last week. Yeah. And this has been going on for five years. Where were you five years ago? There's there's so many hypocrites that come out of the woodwork now. And then, like at the minute, Newcastle's obviously, like, the public enemy number one, because everyone realises, everyone s- sees, oh, 81 people were killed in Saudi Arabia, were executed. It's like, yes, but that they are being executed under Sharia law, which you don't live by. So even you think... So if you think that's wrong, that is not... Like, yeah. they believe that that's right. That's it's the way it, their country works. It's, it's not you. you. You can you can sit there and say, oh, yeah, well, executions are bad. And, I mean, I know there's a... a <laughs> it's a minefield, isn't it? It's a heavy it's, podcast. Because... But we, it's got to be... I've thought about very little else other this weekend because there's been so much, like, heat around the club that it, it's, it's winding me up, so... But like I know people say, people in America get killed and stuff like that, and um, people will reply but to the, that, that saying, "Yeah, but they, they that's don't." That's not the that's the club. not the
1: argument. The argument is the argument isn't we need to police the world, and the argument isn't we need to stop these things happening in other countries because you're right. The argument is should these it,
2: people be allowed to own football? That's clubs, it. Isn't it.
1: You're you're allowing these people
2: yeah. to invest in a piece of. But this is the problem with the Premier League. It's not Marley's fault as a Newcastle fan. It's not Eddie Howe's fault no. as a former Bournemouth manager and football player. Marley supported Newcastle since he was extremely young, way before Saudis were ever interested in buying the club. And I supported this, this Newcastle
0: is... when my dad worked in Saudi Arabia, how how weirdly this uh, <laughs> this thing takes a, this is, a turn.
2: This is something I'm going to get onto on my get in the sea bit. So I'll, I'll kind of keep most of it in for the time being. But it's not up to fans it's up to the premier league and yeah. they have repeatedly repeatedly allowed this sort of investment to happen yeah, and this time around they tried to stop it but their rules were so porous that the saudis were allowed to swan in there find the loopholes and do the deal and any normal business would do that yeah to suit their advantages exactly. we need to be questioning the premier league here their owners and directors test is shocking It has been abysmal for the last 15 years, Mm. probably longer. If the owners and directors test was conducted last week, Roman Abramovich wouldn't be allowed anywhere near a football club. But because it happened 20 years ago, and as Marley says, the world is different, he was allowed in. The same with the owners at Manchester City. The same with the owners at Newcastle. The Premier League allowed so many owners of my football club, Portsmouth, one of them, we don't even know if he existed or not. They were just that desperate to have someone own the club. Wasn't yeah. Harry Redknapp's dog, was it? It might have been <laughs> Harry Redknapp's dog, but who knows? It could have been anyone. But but they were yeah. so desperate to get an owner in there to save face that they yeah. they don't care, uh, and ev- that's that's the disappointing thing. And they're the ones that are culpable, not the fans. Yeah,
0: everybody consumes the Premier League, and they've made it into this beast, which is you know the the most uh, rich league in the world with the best uh, highest um, TV packages and all the rest of it. And then they want to, you know, (laughs) come in with these morals and it's like, oh, well, you can't have this guy. It's like, you could give me a list of all 20 Premier League owners. If you give me an hour with their accounts, I'm pretty sure I could find someone that's dodgy with them. Like, the Glazers, there's are dodgy with them. They're, They're loading debt onto the club. Should they be allowed to do that? I don't know. Have they cut corners in the past? 100%, of course they have. The Glazers, there's there's the, the obvious situation's at chelsea there's the situation at newcastle there's everyone there's mm. chinese businessmen in involved in in loads of premier league clubs they've got an awful human rights record but nobody looks at that because it's not in the public eye right now but if somebody came through and somebody got a load of money everyone would be going oh well their human rights thing isn't great well yeah if you've i've said it before morals and football do, they do not mix yeah. like you can't have can't you, be this moral f- warrior and be like oh you know i'm, I'm you can't have that and then you can't also sit down and watch matches of the Day at the weekend and go oh we played rubbish this weekend
2: you can support Newcastle but not like what the owners get up to in their own country yeah. that's totally acceptable that's totally fair and it's the same reason that you can support Chelsea but not be happy with what mm. Roman Abramovich is up to
1: sounds like we're going to come back onto this a little bit in a while with your getting the C so we'll leave it there for the time being but one man who could be undergoing the Premier League's stringent owner test very soon is Nick Candy. He's one of the names being linked with a takeover of Chelsea at the moment. Uh, He said if he takes control, he's worth two billion quid, by the way. Hmm. which kind of puts into perspective the different gravy we're talking about that, when that, you look at someone like him and someone like Abramovich. That doesn't
2: mean what he's got, though. is what he's worth. No, that's his it? net worth. Yeah, so that's his total.
1: Yeah. So obviously he's not going to go and put two billion quid into a football club <laughs> because sell he, everything. Yeah, he wouldn't have anything left, including the shirt on his back. But anyway, that's beside the point. What he has said, which I quite like, is he said if he takes control of Chelsea, he will put a fan representative on the board so a Chelsea fan will be given a place on the board to represent the fans views and opinions is that something you'd like to see adopted across the Premier League Niall or is it just (sighs) lip service is it just tokenistic
2: it's tokenistic I support a team that went down the leagues because we had bad owners and then the fans rallied together and bought shares in the club and Pompey was a supporter owned football club for a long long time and our new owners uh, who bought the club off of the fans in 2017 um they vowed to have fan representation on the board. We do, but we have it in a specific way. We have a heritage and advisory board, mm. which is uh, basically a separate board that has a, a share in the club in terms of being able to vote on, on uh, important matters like changes of the club crest, changes of the club colours, changes of the name of the stadium, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. The big important stuff that fans should be involved with. Yeah. But that is a heritage and advisory board made up of a number of representatives. Now, one fan on the board is one person, it's not enough. No. And the reason I say that is because people are easily corrupted. You could easily sweeten that person up. That person might be outvoted even if they stood up for themselves. So putting one fan on the board is as you said, it's tokenistic. For me, it's pointless. If Marley goes on the Newcastle United board and they say, right, we want to change Newcastle's name to, to Northeast Magpie's FC, and Marley says, No, I don't want to do that. But the eight other people on the board say, Yes, we're doing it. He's outvoted. So, therefore, it's pointless. Yeah. And even though he carries the representative, very little of the real fans, power there, isn't it? Exactly. There? It's just a token gesture. So, that's why I'm quite happy with what uh, Portsmouth owners have done and have a separate uh, fan representative board itself that will then be consulted when it comes to the big decisions around the football club. Now, when it comes to things like finances, signing players, etc., that does remain in-house and, uh, and with the club's uh, directors and officials. But with the big stuff that you see, um, like, for instance, changes of ownership, who the club will be sold to, changes of the club crest, changes of the, uh, of the name of the club, mm. the stadium naming rights, all of that sort of thing. I think that, therefore, fan representation can be extremely, extremely powerful. But you still need people at the top to run the club. So even in a fan-owned club, you still need a certain amount of people who will have more power than other fans. Directors that make the decisions, chief executives, etc., etc. So, yes, I think it sounds like a great idea having fan representation on the board, but you need more of it than just one person it's more yeah. important to have what? a board
1: it, you can trust and a board that are acting in the best interest of the football club than having a yeah. fan stuck on it's there.
2: like how I feel about NFTs <laughs> right? oh god, oh god. Okay. it's a good idea but the way it's being executed at the moment yeah. isn't okay. a good idea well, so that's how the, I feel about fan before we open
1: that can of worms <laughs> we're going to move on and we're going to talk about well we're going to have a little bit more moaning it's Monday everyone likes a good wind You're on a Monday so we're going to throw one thing each in the sea next and wrap up Football Social Daily after this
0: Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.
1: Final bit of Football Social Daily on a Monday. We wrap up with Get In The Sea, which is our opportunity to kick something to the curb, to get rid of something from the weekend. And my moan I'm going to start off with today is going to be football's bloated expenses. And this is going back to the Chelsea story and the fact they have £20,000 in their back pocket to deal with away travel, which isn't very much, admittedly, when you've got to move an entire football club and the staff around. But I think it highlights how much money football wastes. And Thomas Tuchel was joking that If they can't get a plane to their Champions League game, they'd take the train. If they couldn't take the train, they'll take a bus. If they couldn't take a bus, he'd get a van and he'd drive everyone there himself. And it was in good humour. But at the same time, I think it highlights how pampered footballers and football is. I quite like the fact that maybe Romelu Lukaku's got to get on an easy jet flight and will have to stay in a travel lodge. I don't mind that. I think it's a bit down to earth. And I get there are benefits to private flights in terms of recovery and scheduling and all that kind of thing. And it's not just about luxury, it's about welfare as well. But the idea that that is football's roughing it, that is footballers having to put up with something menial. With the peasants. Yeah, exactly. I I think it's a a demonstration of how it's a them and us situation. And football has become so Mm. bloated with money that the idea of an easy jet flight or a travel lodge is suddenly deemed disgusting you know they've got deep pockets if, you, if they want to sack me, off the travel lodge and go to the premier inn instead yeah, I'm sure they can afford it
2: if you give me 20 grand to get 50 people to Lille I reckon I could do it yeah <laughs> <laughs> it would be a bit of a task to schedule it but I and think get I them sandwiches on route <laughs> exactly
1: Yeah, it's um, it's a bit of a ridiculous scenario at the moment. Although on the football finances, there was an interesting demonstration of how tight it is for Chelsea at the moment. You might have noticed they're still wearing their shirts with three on the front, Mm -hmm. and three (laughs) have withdrawn as a sponsor because they can't, they haven't got the money to go and buy new football shirts, and there are any that have been ordered without the sponsor on it. So that is why they still have three on the front of their shirt, and whoever it is is their sleeve sponsor as well.
0: As well, with this, like this comes down to. Uh, Abramovich running a 100% of the club. If somebody owned 1% of that club, they could put money in to, to, to yeah. sort this out. But because he owns 100% of it, no one can touch it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, three three and Hyundai are like, no, no, we're going to... Uh, can you take our stuff off? It's like, well, unless you've got, you know, time to sit and physically pick it off, you can't. Like, you yeah. can't do it because... They've got nothing to wear. <laughs>
1: well, you posted on our Twitter account the other day when um, West Ham's sponsor XL, the holiday company, went out of business. Yeah, and they played the whole season with well half the season with just these great big white blocks with numbers in. Yeah, and then the other half of the season with a new sponsor. But again, it was just ironed on stickers over the top. Yeah, it looked like Chelsea can't afford the iron. <laughs> That's the thing. They
0: haven't got they haven't got the the means to yeah. to get what. Well, you're probably talking a few hundred patches for the chest, but...
2: I find this odd. What what do they mean they can't afford to buy new kits? Aren't they sponsored by Nike? Can't Nike just knock them up kits without the sponsor on the front? I think they still have to buy them, don't they? No, surely not. Chelsea won't be paying Nike for kids. And Nike are, will be paying Chelsea for kids. Nike of also them?
1: questioning their sponsorship of Chelsea at the moment, oh, anyway. Possibly. So it's probably a Quite yeah, conversation. Possibly. Quite possibly. But that is my getting the Yeah, they, they don't want to give them the money
2: while yeah. they're no, thinking about things. So of that that is my
1: get in the sea anyway. It's bloated footballers' finances. Niall, what have you got?
2: Um, it's sticking on the Chelsea theme. It's exactly what I said earlier on about the fans, and the fans are getting sort of blamed. But, I mean, it's the, it's the tribal nature of being a football supporter. I saw some interviews with Chelsea fans outside Stamford Bridge saying that, oh, I feel attacked because I support Chelsea. Mm. No one's attacking you. No one's attacking the fans of Chelsea, apart from the ones that, you know, chant Roman Abramovich when they probably shouldn't have done and stuff like that. I mean, people that feel exceptionally sorry for the Chelsea fans, like the media uh, at the moment around the Chelsea fans, is starting to wind me up oh, we should feel sorry for them. They don't know about the future of their club. No one cared when it was us. No one cared when it was Crystal Palace. No one cared when it was Bolton. No one cared. Mm. But because it's Chelsea and they're a big club, people seem to care a bit more, particularly the media. Chelsea fans turned up to Fratton Park in 2010 when we didn't have a bean to our name and started getting fivers out of their pockets and coins and started singing, pay up Pompey. Stoke fans did it. I remember sitting in, in the stands at Fratton Park and seeing other teams' fans take their money out of their pocket and laugh at us because we had no money at all. And now people are expecting us to feel sorry for Chelsea fans when they've seen everything for the last 20 years. It's not their fault what's happened, which is what I mean. I don't think they should be blamed, like I said earlier. But I do think that having so much sympathy for them is another matter in, in general because... Do I feel sorry for Chelsea fans? Yeah, I feel a little bit upset for them in terms of they don't know the future of their club. But the government have already come out and said that no undue harm will be done to Chelsea. Chelsea won't go out of business. They won't go bust. They just might not win a Champions League again. And they're still in the Champions League, for God's sake. The European champions, League won the competition twice... I think they've won five Premier Leagues. They've seen some of the best managers of the last 20 years walk through their doors. They've seen a number of trophies. They've seen a number of world-class players, something of which that they weren't in 2003. They were a middling club with a little bit of money. They were sold for a quid a short time before that by Ken Bates. And they had won a couple of FA Cups. That was their kind of their crown and glory, Chelsea Football Club. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I can understand why they feel an attachment to Abramovich. But that era has, has moved on. That era has gone, and understandably so. No one felt sorry for Portsmouth fans, so I ain't going to return the favour. Sorry, that's getting go. in the sea for me.
1: Chelsea fans, if you're looking for sympathy, don't come crying to no, Nile. you're not don't. getting it there. Marley, wrap us up with a little bit of a whinge about Kai Havertz elbowing your players.
2: <laughs> God, it's a proper Chelsea show, this, yeah, isn't it? it is, Do you know what? It's
0: It, it, it obviously is VAR, the, the decision. <laughs> um, of course it is, of, of what to put in, this, in the sea this weekend. It's not even just from the Newcastle game. I mean, it's from the Liverpool game as well when Diaz practically got taken out by... Well, did get taken out by um, Sanchez. Um, and that somehow went unpunished, even though... I mean, yes, he scored the goal, but it's still a bad foul and, and at, least, at least a yellow card. If you're going to say the punishment is the goal, then it's still a yellow card. Um, but yeah, obviously the, the the Chelsea game against Newcastle yesterday was was the one, um, for me where I was just like, What is what's the point in this? What are we doing now? Like what what is the point of VAR? If they're looking at the at a replay which is not hard to it's not as if one angle gives you one opinion and another angle gives you another. You can clearly see that Jacob Murphy touches that ball away from Chalabar. And if you haven't got a if you say, you know, the shirt pulling's not enough to give a penalty, then the the leg going across and Murphy going over it is 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 the you know the 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 straw that breaks the camel's back sort of thing um so it's it's a clear penalty they even gave a corner off the back of it which suggests that um can you see any like take your they seen the, take, the touch. Your,
1: take your newcastle glasses off for a second can yeah. you justify it in any way looking at that thinking okay i can see why they made that decision
0: no like, it's it's not even it's just it's it's hard to see in real life and especially where probably the worst referee I've ever seen, David Coote, was was stood in a terrible position. He couldn't see, he didn't have the right angle for it um, because he was behind, he was sort of like side-on with the place, so his angle would suggest Chalabar could could have poked the ball away. You know, it's exactly why you need VAR. You need to go, didn't have the best view of that, lads. Let me have another look at it, or you have a look at it and tell me if I need to go and see it, but there was just nothing. There was was nothing, and then, you know, to to say that... um, that it's a corner, so the one thing you're looking at is the feet, and the one thing—I mean, Chalibur's wearing orange boots. For f- sake, like you can clearly see the big orange boot does not get near the ball, and Murphy's white boot or whatever colour it was touches the ball away from every angle. You can see that, um, and you know that's there's the foul. It should have been a penalty. Um, mm. Abramovich. I mean, if I if I if my second name was Letitia, I'd have my little tin hat on, saying uh, <laughs> the Premier League's a conspiracy against. Against Newcastle and Abramovich can't put money into uh, into Chelsea, but he can put money into the VAR officials' pockets for uh, <laughs> for for paying them to to win the uh, the game for Chelsea. But there's that, and then there's the elbow on on Dan Byrne. I mean, if you elbow a guy who's six foot seven and in the air, your elbow is clearly high, um, splits him open just above the above the eye. There's another one. Um, there was. Quite a few other decisions in the actual game itself, which, which were were poor, um, in terms of like free kicks and things going certain ways, that that was that was all poor. But it's uh, it's just a sign of what needs to go wrong for Newcastle to lose a match, to be honest, because we were we were great again, had half a team, we were brilliant, um, but unfortunately got screwed by the uh, the officials.
1: I would absolutely love to be able to listen to the VAR conversations. I think that would solve a lot of issues that people have with VAR. If you could hear what's going on, and what I didn't realize is commentators get that feed. So if you're commentating,
0: yeah, that's why they always know the decision first. Yeah, yeah, they get the kind of feed from the VAR, which I think you can't. You can't. You can't have them. You can't plug that in to to the broadcast though because all you'd hear is like the Emmerdale theme tune like watching Emmerdale <laughs> 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 we we'll
1: just eat turning up the pizzas <laughs> arrived all yeah. uh, right that is it for football social daily we'll finish there thank you very much for listening we'll be back again tomorrow with another roundup of everything that's going on in the Premier League don't forget you can find more podcasts you love on the sports social podcast network just head to the website podcast.sport-social.co.uk and we'll see you next
0: time